So we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1, and we read this about Jesus. As people are coming in from every direction, he's there in the northern region of Israel and the Galilean region. And it says, And again he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin, sins but God alone? But immediately... When Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were reasoning thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out of the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. No, they hadn't. (laughs) It was a very special event. Obviously, again, God is on the earth, and he's doing these amazing miracles and these amazing things. It's Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, he demonstrates his authority over every realm because he is over every realm. We understand that. In the human experience, of, as we understand it, of time, space, and matter, God is outside that realm, and he comes into this realm. And all that we can see, macro and micro, in this entire universe, revolves around the events of this earth, the fall of the first Adam, the head of our race, and the second Adam coming to redeem that race back to God. And so when he's here on earth doing the miracles he did, it's Jesus demonstrating his authority over different dominions and realms as we understand him. So here, in healing this this man who was a paralytic, he was unable to walk, it's a physical healing, it's a supernatural, miraculous healing by which Jesus shows that he's greater than that physical infirmity and affirms that he has the power to forgive sin. So we see in the text that he commends their faith. In verse 5, it says Jesus saw their faith. So we have a large crowd. We know there's large multitudes going to Jesus, and there's a lot going on. I mean, there's people there to be healed. They're there to have demons cast out. There's, all, there's a bit of a craziness to the ministry at this point because there's a lot going on, and things are happening. And Jesus is just he's fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies that the blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the dead would rise. And that certainly in the first third of his ministry, that first year, so much of that was unfolding as he's presenting himself to the nation as the Christ, the promised one of the Old Testament. Here, these four people bring their friend, and it, it is a unique detail, and it's worth noting that Jesus commends them for their faith. These friends brought their friend to Jesus. And they didn't just bring him to Jesus, but we're given the detail that they had faith in Jesus, who he was and what he could do in bringing their friend to him. This is an important detail because our 
goal as followers of Christ is to let our light shine before men. We want to win people to Jesus by representing Jesus properly in how we think, talk, act, react, and so on and so forth. And we want to bring people to Jesus. And when we come into the equation and we carry ourselves like Jesus would in contrast to people who aren't walking with Jesus or living for Christ, we, we bring Jesus to our friends. And we want to have faith that God's working in and through our lives to reach our friends through our lives. And we want to have faith that God can work in their lives and the people we're trying to reach. Like, faith is a critical element, of course. We, we know that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We also know that our faith is in the person and the work and the character and the promises of Jesus Christ. These four friends, whatever they understood concerning Jesus, Jesus knows their hearts. And in the same context where he's reproving the religious people for their hearts, knowing their hearts, he reproves one group of people collectively for their unbelief and what they're thinking, while he commends another group of people for their faith in what they are thinking. Two different groups of people, two different motives, two different statements in the context, and the result of the faith of the four friends being fulfilled in the forgiveness of the sins for their friend and the miraculous physical healing of their friend. It is a contrast. The Gospels have just so much contrast between people responding in faith in Jesus and people rejecting Jesus with unbelief. And it's just, it's there throughout the Gospels. There's no way around it. It's in our society. It's in our lives. It's in our world. And it's just the way it is. But it all centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus saw their faith. He took note of it. And the real issue when, you know, Jesus said he knew what they were thinking and if you think about it, they're saying, why does this man speak, verse 7, blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus is God. We saw in chapter 1, the father spoke when Jesus was baptized and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He is God. Jesus is deity. He is God. His blood is not the same as our blood as the sons of Adam and Eve. His blood is a sinless blood, born of the virgin birth. He is God. Even in that story with the rich young ruler, Jesus was putting back on the rich young ruler to think about if you're calling me good, there's only one good that's God, so do you believe I'm God? That's essentially the context of that other story later on in Jesus' ministry where the reasonable thinking and the common sense thinking will conclude that Jesus is God. It's a different situation with the rich young ruler near the end of the ministry versus here with these religious leaders in the beginning of the ministry. But their question is not asked in faith because they say Jesus is speaking blasphemies. Their question is asked in unbelief. Jesus is God. And so he very simply says, how can you, you know, so what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your bed and walk. Now, very few people would claim to have the authority to forgive sins. Very few people, right? Like how many people would say like, oh, I have the authority to forgive sins. Like you look at the great world religious leaders and philosophers, whoever said they could forgive sins? Muhammad didn't say it. Buddha didn't say it. Confucius didn't say it. Okay. Moses definitely didn't say it. I mean, did Darwin say it? Like who really ever said they have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus alone said that. Whoever claimed to be the only way to God exclusively, 
in his person. People not in a right mind, like Billy Graham would say, Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. So you have to figure that one out. It's a common statement he made almost every crusade. You ever watch his crusades? He says almost every crusade. You got to figure out what Jesus is because he said things no one else said. So here he says that you may know, okay, not wonder, not presume, not be certain about, but you may know. Now, the Bible says a lot of times that you may know. Jeremy and I were praying with someone over the phone the other day, yesterday, and Jeremy was sharing with them about assurance in heaven for a loved one, and he said, these things I've written that you might know that believing in the Son, he who is the Son has life, and that you might know that you have eternal life. These things I've written that you would know you have eternal life. Jesus here says that you would know God doesn't want his people groping around in the dark like, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure how I'm saved. I'm not sure that I am saved. I'm not sure that I'm forgiven. I'm not sure how I can be forgiven. No, Jesus definitively did things that we would know. We would know how to be saved through faith in him. We would know that our sins are forgiven because he died for our sins. And we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. That we would know there is assurance. And sin, of course, is the issue. Because in Adam, all sin and all die. But in Christ, our sins are forgiven because he's going to pay the price in this context. And he did pay the price in our context. We wouldn't know. And sin is the biggest issue because it, it breaks the fellowship. We're born in broken fellowship with God. Jesus dies for our sins and restores the fellowship and forgives our sins. And it's there. And then we're, we're cleansed as we go forward, asking forgiveness and going forward in the Lord. So... He wants us to know, even when John wrote 1 John, he said that you, you know, that you would know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. God doesn't want his children walking around defeated because of personal failures and shortcomings. And for us this night, he doesn't want us uh, walking in self-condemnation or demonic condemnation. There's no condemnation. Those are in Christ Jesus. And he wants us to know that he has paid the price and he wants to cleanse us. And he he wants us to recognize sin because the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our own life and not be a slave to sin because he sets us free from sin. But if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed that we can know eternal life and be set free. And so this statement that you would know, that you would know the supernatural authority I have to forgive sins exists, I will show you the supernatural authority I have in the physical realm to confirm it, which is easier to say. Which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk. But you would know when he takes up his bed and walk that I have the authority to forgive sins. It's a central issue. We saw last week with John the Baptist in his preaching, preached a baptism of repentance. And we read that the people went out confessing their sins. That's the issue. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins and restore us in fellowship to the Father. We must be born again because in Adam all sin and die. That was of the flesh is flesh, but that was born of the spirit is, is the spirit. We must be born again. And that comes through our confessing of our sins, our repentance of our sins, and finding forgiveness. It's Jesus. There is no one else. And we have that message. And, you know, think how crippled so many people we love and care about who don't know the Lord are by their sins. They're crippled by the bondage of their sins. They're crippled by the denial of their sins, deception of the effect of their sins and the consequences of their sins and the death of their sins. And the, the reality of sin is most demonstrated in elderly people who have rejected Christ and are in some form of assisted living or elderly living. And they're full of bitterness and wrath. And they've just imploded on themselves in a wasted life 
fighting God to the end and just given over to their sins. It is it's a tragedy when you think about being given over to our sins. So Christ healed this man, commended the faith of his friends who brought him to Christ to be forgiven. They thought, maybe they thought they were bringing him to be healed and they believed Jesus could heal him, but they're really bringing him, according to Jesus' purposes, to be forgiven for all the great things that Jesus does to improve the quality of life of humanity. Nothing gets better until we're confessing, repenting of our sins and being forgiven. And that's the gospel message. Like that's, that's the message of the church that's never going to change until the Lord comes back and establishes the kingdom and all fullness, all things of, you know, the new heaven and the new earth. This is our message that, that people need to repent and be forgiven of their sins so they can have that fellowship. And really, this, this paralytic man is symbolic of humanity without Christ. We're not walking the way God wants us to walk. We can't even walk in the way that he would have for us. But when we're saved, we're given that second life. And man, pick up your bed, get on with it. And the people say, we've never seen anything like that. Of course not. How could you? You've never, because it, it's God. They were there. Like this event happened, and it's recorded for us to understand the importance of our sins what Christ did for us and the authority he has to forgive our sins through his death on the cross for our sins. And that message we have is the hope of humanity. My despondency in attempted suicide many years ago was directly related to a hopelessness that I could not overcome my sin. And I had this faulty theology that I had to do more good than bad to be saved. And I knew enough of myself in my early 20s that I had more bad than good, and I didn't know how to fix the bank account, the moral bank account. And it was, uh, you know, the, the, the futility of it all was when I went to the county mental health one time, and I was told I needed to forgive myself. I, I shared my sins, and the lady says, you need to forgive yourself. And I thought, I'm not sure what I believe, but I definitely believe I do not have the authority to forgive myself. So whatever this is all about, this isn't for me. And I walked out of San Diego County Mental Health in Escondido on that day. I never went back, started listening to K-Wave, got a study Bible, and got saved. And I realized I was forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. And the real issue wasn't how to be forgiven. The, willing, the real issue was the willingness to repent and choose to be forgiven. I learned that. People need to be forgiven. And they can only be forgiven in Jesus Christ. The futility of all those world religions of people trying to save themselves without Christ there's only one way to deal with sin. It's through faith in Jesus Christ because he alone paid the price. We read on, verse 13, then second story. Then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them and he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, that would be Matthew, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him meeting with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus heard it, and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." So this is the second of these four stories in this text tonight. It revolves around Matthew. So we saw last week that Jesus called Peter and Andrew, John and James, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And we talked about it's following the person of Jesus Christ. We're called to relationship with the living God through his son. 
with the Father, Abba Father, through faith in the Son and being born of the Spirit. And here he calls Matthew, another one of the 12 apostles, he calls him. So we get that detail for us. He was a tax collector, so he had a good job. He could he had regular employment just being the tax collector working for Rome, but then he could take extra and, and make extra money, however he chose to do, whether he was honest or dishonest, we don't really know. But we do know that when Jesus calls someone, he calls them to follow him, and he calls them immediately to follow him. It's never tomorrow with God's calling. It's always today. Today is a day of salvation today. And, and of course, he calls them publicly so he called Matthew, and, you know, it's amazing when you think about this. Jesus walks by you, and maybe you knew about Jesus, and maybe you had had eye contact with Jesus before. you kind of been watching the rabbi from Nazareth, his deal, you know, and whatever. You might have heard about this and the healing of the sick and casting out demons. But, you know, when Jesus walks by you, and he looks at you, and he says, follow me, that could, that, in many cases, that is the most important moment of your life, because you don't know if that call is going to come again. It's like watching these Billy Graham crusades. You know, he says over and over again, he gives examples like, you don't know, like, this is, this, this is it for you. For many of you, this is it. You'll never have this chance again. I'm like, wow, like Anaheim, 1985. Like, this is it for you. And he starts talking about different people who went forward and then died a day later. People who were coming to go forward and died on the way there at different crusades. He's like going, it's so real. Like, there's no coming back from eternity. There's no, there's no do-over to be saved. There's no do-over to be sanctified and serve the Lord and fulfill your calling. It's one time, and that's it. That's it. And you're here on Tuesday night, so that shows the reverence and the respect for that. We do not get a do-over. This is it. This is it. This is it. I got a do-over as the USA Surf Team coach, right? I did the USA Surf Team 2007-2009. Went to two World Junior Championships we podium with fourth place. They'd give a copper medal for fourth. We made final four like basketball with really good teams, two coppers. Let that go to do the movie, go out and do evangelism, England, ends of the earth, Chile, all that stuff. Never thought I'd do it again. I got to do the U.S. team again. Got a do-over. What did we get? We got a gold, a world title. We got a silver, another gold in the Aloha Cup, won a bronze, and then a gold in the Paralympic surfing. Like, on my do-over, I got two gold medals, three, actually, and two world titles, okay? It's like, that was a nice do-over. Let me tell you, it felt, you know, let me tell you something about medals. You like medals versus not liking medals, but there's a reason people, like, go for the gold. No one ever says go for the silver. And you feel better when you win it all. I'm just telling you, it's honest. Many of you know that. It's like, I got a do-over. I got a do-over as a coach. And it's like, wow, it just seems so easy. We could never beat the Aussies, and we throttled them two years in a row. Can never beat the Brazilians. We beat them down. You know, it's like if it wasn't for the Japanese, we would have swept the whole thing, right? You know, like they got really good and that's that, you know, just how it works in sports. But it was like, wow, you know, Hawaii owned us. And then like, how do we figure out how to beat Hawaii? Do we get lucky? Was it answered prayers of Jeremy praying for me? Who knows? You know, it's like, but I got a do-over. And it changed the legacy of my coaching career now that I'm completely retired. But I don't get one of those in life. If I'm going copper right now, I, I got to find gold now. I don't get to come back and go, hey, can I get a rematch? Can I do like, Lord, I was thinking, like, could we go back and try and fix these coppers and replace them with gold and silver or something like that? No. This is it. When Jesus calls you in the tax booth, he calls you as you are, and he calls you to follow him to who he's calling you to be. And he's got dominion and authority over our life to call us to do what he's calling us to do. And it doesn't have to make sense. It just has to be following Jesus. 
And Matthew followed Jesus. And immediately, his friends all know he's following Jesus. And some of them are following Jesus because they're all gathered together. And we just love this, that Jesus meets people where they're at, right? This is that story that makes it so clear. The Pharisees are like, oh, how, how can you do that? How can you eat with these people? Because, of course, in the Jewish culture, when you break bread with people, you're, in a sense, having fellowship with them. And many cultures, of course, not so much in America, because those things fast, 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 like fast food, fast dining. But many of you know when you go to Europe or South America and places like you, sometimes you sit down and you have a long meal, and it can last hours in, in different cultures. And it's building relationships. And we've talked about this recently, but in the 80s and 90s, in the Calvary movement, it was come and see. So people would go to a Harvest Crusade. People would go to the sanctuary at Calvary Costa Mesa to hear, you know, Greg Laurie or Joey Baran or, or Gary Beeler, and people would come and see. But the shift culturally in the last 10 years, last five years, people don't come and see anymore. Rarely do they come and see. You gotta go and tell. It's go and tell. Our children's generation is a generation of go and tell. Well, at the Voice of the Martyrs conference here at Calvary Costa Mesa on Saturday, uh, the worship leaders, there was a woman playing the harp. It was unbelievable. It was beautiful with her siblings, and it was very skillful music. I mean, at the highest level, it was elite music. And she said they do all this ministry in Ireland where less than one third of 1% people are considered believers in Jesus as we understand it. And she said, I can tell you something right now about the Irish people. They're oppressed and depressed. And she said, nobody is in Ireland is ever going to come to church to hear us play our music in the church. Therefore, when we go to Ireland, we go on the streets and we play our music on the streets and people stop. And she goes, I'm going to play a few songs for you that we play on the streets in Ireland to draw a crowd and then share the gospel. They're not coming and seeing. you got to go and tell. Jesus, go and tell. And then dinner with Jesus at Levi's house is a go and tell. we got to go to Levi's house and hang out with all of his friends and go and tell. We have to look for those opportunities. We need to pray for those opportunities, and we need to embrace those opportunities. When people let us into this, their world, we got to go and tell. I was speaking with Scott Cunningham the other night after he was here doing worship after service, and he was telling about his daughter, Maddie, who, of course, is an incredible musician, you know, a very successful career going right now with kind of like a jazzy, folksy type of music, you know, managers, agents, New York City, L.A., all this kind of stuff, very elite music, like Danny's music, and... But he was telling me where she was in New York doing something and then that they were fascinated by Maddie and they, they were interviewing her. And this man's a multi-multi-millionaire type of guy and in front of all of his peer group and all these huge donors to all these different political causes and whatnot, they wanted to ask her about her faith. And like, so your, your dad's a pastor. Tell us about that. And Maddie was completely blown away by the opportunity that her music gave her. You know, Scott did music as a youth for Salty's Singing Songbook, the VHS videos of the 80s. He did, you know, Colby, the computer. Like, he, Scott did children's praise music stuff. And he's, Scott, of course, a very gifted musician. But the idea that his daughter's music, that he groomed his oldest daughter for all these music opportunities, would go for anything other than the gospel directly was like uh, just, and he told me, he goes like, when she was like 15, he's like, There's, no, she's got to do church, she's got to do gospel, she's got to do this and that. And then God showed him that she's got to do what I've called her to do, not what you're telling her to do. And she's going to go where I want her to go, not where you're telling her to go. And you got to trust your daughter to me. Scott just saying like now looking at where his daughter can go where you and I can't go. 
and her light shining before men and women for the gospel draws people to the Lord at Levi's dinner table and gives her the opportunity to share her faith that they're asking for. You see, that's how salt works, salt and light. When your light shines before people, like, oh, look at the light. Where's this going? And salt adds flavor. So that's what it does. Like, wow, like, why are you like this? Like, you glow, like, and, and like, what, 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 you know? So now you're, you're, you're very real to us, but your, your dad's a, 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 a evangelical pastor. Like, how, how did you end up like this? See, it's breaking stigmas and stereotypes in their mind, and she's just able to share the gospel. See, these religious leaders, like, how, you can't sit down with those people. And Jesus is like, I mean, you got to, this is a pretty cool, there's a couple of dinner scenes in the Bible, right? There's the Last Supper. Whoa, we just had that the other night on Saturday night. And then there's this dinner. Like, what a contrast, right? Well, really not that big if you think about it. But Matthew's at both dinners, by the way. That's interesting. I never thought of that. But Matthew and his friends, like, so, bro, like, you know, just imagine the conversation at this dinner table. Like, they're probably drinking. People are drinking. And it's like, hey, you know, like, what about this? And, you know, those Pharisees, like, you know, and it's like the high priest, what's his gig? You know, like, you can just, like, think how your friends are and your family when they've had a couple drinks at Thanksgiving, right? You know, like, we can picture this. And Jesus just, he wasn't defiled by the environment. He elevated the environment. See, it's... Concerning Jesus, it says a bruised reed he doesn't break and a smoking flax he doesn't quench. So when Jesus puts his carbon prints on anything, it's light and life because he's the light and life of men, John chapter 1 tells us. So that's how we can be. Don't worry about the conversation if it's grievous and vulgar or whatever. That's real life, man. We can't get around that. But we can come in those environments and we can bring Christ into it, how we carry ourselves. Yeah, and there's things that make you feel embarrassed because they said this or something was said there. It's like, ooh, dude, that's kind of inappropriate. You know, like, but nonetheless, like, we're to go into all the world with all the authority of Christ and let our light shine. And Jesus is showing us how to be real with real people. That's what he's showing us in this passage. We've moved from come and see generation to go and tell. And if we're wise in the Lord and we're just prayerful and thinking, whatever our interests are and wherever we connect with people, we want to think about how do I uh, fruitfully bring Christ in that equation in a, in a good way. That's, that's what we want to be thinking. And I encourage you to think that way. It's great to get people to you know, come and see. If you can bring people to church, great, come and see. Our K-Wave broadcast, people come out to it. Come and see. Appreciate that. Come and see works really good for believers, maybe looking for a new church or just want to check something out, uh, whatever. But go and tell. I mean, Brian Broderson was sharing today at a pastor's breakfast over at Calvary Costa Mesa. He just came back from Australia. And he's talking about the vision of Calvary Costa Mesa. And it's, it's, you know, it's a Jesus first church. He was saying the vision is that Jesus taught the truth and Jesus showed love. So that was part of the vision there. And it's a kingdom church that it can work with other parts of the body of Christ, like the 12 tribes. I thought, man, that's brilliant because we think the same way. And then it's a great commission church that we go and tell. And Brian was talking about a vision he had where he saw in front of him an empty field with just dirt, but behind him, he saw all the fruit of the last 30 years of his ministries of sowing the gospel overseas. And I saw a post of David Downs, who we know and love in Italy, a good friend of ours, WG, past background on our ministry team, learned Italian, you know, has an Italian heritage, is an Italian citizen now. 
But uh, David Downs posted in his Insta story that he was in Subotica, Yugoslavia, planning a uh, men's conference. They, he had pictures going into uh, Serbia, you know? And I was like, wow. Because I remember when Brian Broderson, when the Iron Curtain came down, the Berlin Wall came down, I remember being on staff at Calvary Vista as a very young pastor when Brian took his first out step of faith in missions and he went to Subotica, Yugoslavia. And they got off a plane, didn't know what they were doing. They had Mike Harris, too. Mike Harris had long hair, played a guitar in the courtyard, and, you know. And everyone's like, to Brian, like, what's the plan? He's like, mm, I don't know. It's just, and, and Brian's preaching Piccadilly Square in London. It's just, you just, the Creation Fest in Scotland, so on the streets of Glasgow, like, we go and tell, and we meet people where they're at. We're not all street preachers, obviously, but we we build relationships with trust and we bring our friends and we let Jesus do the talking. He's, we let Jesus do the shining and it's, it's go and tell. And we're witnesses. Our life does the most telling how we carry ourselves. And our words certainly are a big part of that too. So I love this passage because it's, it's, it's not show and tell, it's go and tell. Yeah, it's just go and tell. Just be, you, be real with Jesus. Don't be weird because God's not weird. You can be quirky because some people are quirky. Try not to be, though, you know. And just be you in Jesus and let your light shine at the dinner table. Bring Jesus to dinner. Where you've been invited, bring Jesus. Verse 18. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, and then they came and said to him, Jesus, why do you, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and tears made worse. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So... The background here, of course, was fasting. And this is an interesting combination, isn't it? The disciples of John the Baptist, like John's whole message was follow Jesus. So I'm always kind of scratching my head when they're still disciples of John the Baptist and that's their identity as opposed to being disciples of Jesus Christ. But if you move past that, because John had loyal friends and that's a good thing. We talked about that recently. Loyalty and friendship is a very good thing as opposed to betrayal, which we taught on Saturday night. But that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are kind of together in something. It's like, really? Like, the Pharisees and disciples of John the Baptist are coming together saying, well, we fast, but you guys don't. Like, why is that? Now, if it's a sincere question, okay, that's valid. I mean, it's valid. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's, maybe it's an accusative question, maybe it's sincere. I just think it's interesting that it's these two groups put together asking the question. So Jesus used the analogy, like, you're getting ready for the wedding day. No one's fasting going to a wedding. Like, it's, it, our, our in-laws, the Bradleys, are preparing for their second wedding. Jake is our son-in-law, and their oldest daughter's about to get married. It's exciting. You're not going to fast for the wedding. You're rejoicing with the bridegroom. Now, when all that's passed, then there's an appropriate time to fast. You need to, you need to play the right tune at the right time in the right circumstance of life, basically. And... Jesus used common sense understanding for his day, like, hey, no one's going to fast when the bridegroom's getting married. It's a party. We're all excited. It's a joyful thing. It's, it's incredible. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, and we're all super happy and excited about this. So why would we fast? It's a party. We're figuring out how we're going to pay for all the food. 
and all the rented chairs and all the other things we're going to pay for. You know, the DJ, everything. We just got to figure it all out. And it's an exciting time. Why are we going to do all this and then fast? So he just used something they could understand. But then he also said that you're not going to put unshrunk cloth on, on uh, previously shrunk cloth because it's going to tear. So if you understand garments, you understand how that works. And then they'd put the wine in wineskin, but it's only good for its wineskin. You can't put other wine, new wine, in old wineskin. It bursts. It defeats the purpose. These are all cultural illustrations that would be like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But notice the last thing he said. New wine must be put in new wineskin. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel, he also added that both are preserved. There's a place for the old, and there's a place for the new. And that's a delicate balance in life, right? Like honoring the past and what is old and respecting that, but not being rigid or bound to that, but recognizing the new. Now, in the context, it's the old covenant. Before Christ came the law, Jesus fulfills the old covenant, and becomes a new covenant. The law, he fulfills the law and the prophets. It doesn't cancel the law and the prophets. In in a sense, he replaces for salvation, but the word of God is all there for a reason. And we understand that the New Testament even gives interpretation of understanding the law. To love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law. We understand that because what was Danny's last thing that he's saying? Love never fails. Okay, so we understand that. So that's the context. But Really, as we think about our lives, new wine and new wineskins, the application is just so powerful. Like, we want to be open to new things that God has for our life. God doesn't want us living in the past. He wants us living in the present. We need to be up for new adventures. We need to be open to hear his voice and to, to, to take steps of faith. For we walk by faith. And, and we're called to live a life of faith. And that's the danger of getting comfortable. We move toward comfort. But God's always moving us toward faith. And even if we're in a comfortable place, we need to be thinking about, well, what, what does God want to do with my life at this point in time? How do I take steps of faith? How, do I, how am I open to seeing God's handiwork move and work in our life? New wine is just that. And it doesn't go in old wineskin. Old wineskin is, is what God has done in your life in the past, and it's wonderful. And having planted multiple churches... And particularly the two different churches of Virginia and Vermont on the East Coast, they were so different. They were so, and then this one, the third one, is just like, wow, completely different. Orange County, 2.1 miles from Big Calvary, right? So there might be commonality in God's faithfulness, of course there is, and even callings. But we, we're poured out from vessel to vessel so we don't settle in our dregs, as it says in Jeremiah. And we need to be poured out. And new wine goes in new wineskin. It's like, hey, I'm super, I'm blessed to think what God did in my life in the, in the late 80s. Blessed by what he did in the 90s. Late 90s. Retelling the story of how I came on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa to Jeremy the other day. Just a reminder of God's faithfulness to me. The equation of the, the sequence of things that God did. But I'm not going on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck like I was in, in January 2000. That's, that's, that's almost 20 years ago. It's almost two decades ago. That's not, that's not now. Now is now. Now is 57 here at this time and this place. And new wine, new wineskin. When we pray about the new year for the church, we're not thinking like, well, what would we do last year? Let's think what we do this year. We want to do what's obvious to do with a quality manner, spirit-filled, spirit-led. But we want to be open to new things. Look at the, the dinner fellowship groups we're doing this month. 
That, that was just, hey, let's see what the Lord wants to do. It's kind of like Jonathan uh, and, and his armor bearer in, in 1 Samuel. It's like, hey, let's just go see what the Lord wants to do. If they do this, we'll do that. If they do this, we'll do that. Like, let's just see. Like, let's just see. Let's be open. Let's, let's be willing to go for it. And already this year, this month, we're doing something we've never done before, like these, these dinner fellowship groups. It's like, okay, here we go. Lord, it's your church. Let's see how it goes. Let's just... Let's see how it goes, look at it, figure out how we can, you know, uh, improve it and just bring the body of Christ together. It's like, let's go for new things. Now we're going to do a women's ministry like we generally do. We're going to do it up here instead of over there. That's a little different. But like men's ministry, yeah, we got ideas of how we want to get the men together. It'll be new. It'll have a different look than the past. We'll know more very shortly that we'll put before the church. But someone today, Joe Pettick from Calvary Chapel of the Harbor, was talking about 20 years ago being at a a youth, a youth camp in Indiana with Joe Pettick. He was a youth group leader for a church from Michigan. And Jeremy Camp was there, and he was nobody for anybody at that time. And he was leading worship. He wasn't even married. He hadn't even married his first wife yet, Melissa Henning Camp. And we're all there. It was a great time. And, you know, I said about Jeremy Camp, I go, this guy's calling is bigger than the Calvary movement, and you are supposed to be a pastor, Joe Pettick. And then Joe's like, dude, the rest, like, look. I'm like, yeah, but, and it's like, it's beautiful. Let's talk about where we're going. And so the old wine's good. It's good to look back and say, God did this, God did that. It's like those pillars, right? Like those memorials along the way. But we, we're, we're always going forward. And new wine goes in new wineskin. So my point is, Joey, what's the point? It's like, we need to think outside the box, not outside the character of Christ or the purposes of Christ, we need to think outside the box because if we limit our play calling going forward based on what we know in the past, how are we going to be open and innovative and creative to how God wants to use us to become all things to all men that we might win them to Christ? We don't say groove anymore at Calvary Costa Mesa, right? That's old wine, old wineskin. Everyone around saying groovy, far out, one way. That's good stuff. That that's not the millennials deal. That was the baby boomers, right? So that's the old wine. We appreciate that. But new wine goes in new wine skin. And I think it's important that we all, as we go forward in this year, and we've kind of got our calibration on the year after January is behind us. What is the new wine? Like, what are the new things? Like, if you could live for one more year and you knew you're going to live for one more year, what would you do? What would you go for? Like, that was really the easy decision for me with continuing on with Olympic uh, surfing as the head coach, like if, if I'm going to live till August 2020 to the Tokyo Olympics, and that's it, do I want to spend the next two years driven for that gold that perishes, presuming we could even win the gold, or would I rather spend those two years completely poured into pastoring, worship generation, and the kingdom of God and the Calvary movement for such a time as this? I was like, going to go for the imperishable crown and that's not to take away from them going for the gold but we're going to go for the imperishable crown if i got two years to live no one if they had two years to live and were fully vested in the kingdom of god as a pastor or minister is going to look back at them and say wow i wish i would have just kept the team usa gear and gone for the gold no nothing against that if that's what you're called to do i'm not being disrespectful i'm just saying in my life i know i'm called to be a pastor and i knew i was called to retire as a coach so that was easy so if you think, like, what, what if in August 2020, like, if you knew that was the end, like, what would you want to do now? Like, we walked by the, uh, the marathon the other day. My wife and I were on the bikes on there in Huntington. And we're like, oh, we could do that half marathon. I mean, think about 13 one. I mean, it'll hurt, but you could do it, you know? And we were leaving, and I'm walking by these people, and this guy goes, I literally heard him say to his family, and he's, like, hobbling. And he's like, 
check that off my bucket list. That's literally what he said when I rode by. He's like, hey, he just said check that off my bucket list. The guy's never done a half marathon. He showed up. He did it. He went for it. And he's going home at 2 o'clock. He's got the nice little metal thing. I did the half marathon. What would you go for? Whoever gets to their deathbed and says, wow, I did too much for the Lord. No. I'll be bragging about the crazy adventures of Vermont and Virginia and Chile and all those things. I'll be like, come here, come here closer. I'm going to tell you a story, you know. Like, you want it to count, right? Make it count. New wine, new wineskins. Be open. Think outside the box. Because God's just from deep, deep, cries out to deep. He can just keep going, going, going. You can't outvision God. And you can't outbig God. And all he's calling you to do is trust him for the next step. Not for two. Just the one. Last but not least tonight, we come to verse 23. Now it happened that he, Jesus, went through the grain field on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So we talked about Jesus' authority over sickness to heal the the paralytic. He shows his authority in supernatural. And here he says he's over the Sabbath. Something also important, these religious leaders who are questioning what they're doing on the Sabbath, most of you, maybe not all of you know, that they added all kinds of things to the Sabbath. There are interpretations of the Sabbath. So in something designed to be refreshing for you and your family or you and your loved ones or just you to be refreshed in the Lord, they made it a yoke of bondage and laborsome. And that's what, man, that's what religion does. It takes the joy of the Lord and just crushes it and makes it oppressive. And you better work this and you better work that. I love what Jesus says here. The heart of God is good things. The heart of God is to bless us. The heart of God is to refresh us for the things of God. He's not trying to put a yoke on us. When they tried to put a yoke on the early church in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, Peter got up and said, hey, 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 stop. Why are we trying to put a yoke on these people? We couldn't carry a yoke. Why are we going to put a yoke on them? Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's joy to serve the Lord. It's not always easy. And through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. But there's a joy in the midst of it. When it's heavy and burdensome, that's religion. That's man. That's not the Lord. But final thought here. Why do they do this? What's not lawful on the Sabbath? So that was their interpretation. Their question in verse 24 is poorly based. But I love verse 23. They're just going through the field. You know, it's like they're just doing what they're doing. They're hanging out. And Jesus said, have you guys never read what David did? And what David did is he ate the showbread, which was for the priest. David did something he was not allowed to do. He took the bread that was for the priest in the tabernacle, and he ate it, and he gave it to his friends. And Jesus here is citing it as an example of understanding something. What do we understand? That God looks at the heart and the motive much more than the actual action. See, David ate the showbread. He goes, it's just bread. God's the one that makes it holy. It's just bread. We're hungry. We're being persecuted. We can eat the bread. Thousand years later, Jesus says, it's all good. See, God looks at the heart. And God said of David that that David had a heart for him. God looks at the heart. And God 
through Jesus here, gives us clarity on what happened in 1 Samuel a thousand years before when King David, before he was king, ate the showbread. David wasn't superstitious and David wasn't religious. He had a heart for God and he understood the heart of God that the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he ate the show. It's the heart that matters more than the actions. And ironically, Uzziah, the, the king, when he went in the temple years later, centuries later, and the priest tried to talk him out of it, he said, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want. He went in the holy area and he, he became leprous and ended his reign as a leper. The moral of the story is God looks at the heart. David can eat the showbread because his heart's right with God, and God knows that. Uzziah cannot go into the temple because his heart's not right with God. One's in humility with brokenness, seeking to do what's right with the Lord as best you know how. The other is filled with pride, thinking he's above all laws that God's given. God looks at the heart and keep our heart pure, keep the issues of our heart clean before the Lord. And, you know, if you've been misunderstood and your heart's in a good place, let God confirm that and just go forward as best you can. Amen.